millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. And it's our first podcast of 2023, so welcome back to all our listeners, and I hope you had a restful break. Uh, I'm delighted today to be interviewing one of my colleagues from the Centre for Policy Studies, Samuel Hughes. Samuel joined relatively recently as our Head of Housing. He's also a Research Fellow at the University of Oxford, which I think most of you will have heard of, and uh, has worked for Policy Exchange, Create Streets, and on various housing-related projects. So Samuel, welcome to the podcast. It's your debut. Thank you very much for being with us. Lovely to be here. Now, tell me, how does someone with an academic interest in philosophy, aesthetics, and 19th century German thought come to be the head of housing at a centre-right conservative think tank? Yeah, but it is a strange story, and I think I've probably got a, a, a career trajectory of which I'm the only person to... Uh... So the, the story goes that I was, in, I was a visiting student in Berlin at the time, and I was thinking about what I, would, um, what I wanted to do with my future while I wrote my doctorate. Um, and my old professor, Roger Scruton, came to visit, who taught me when I was an undergraduate. Um, and I explained to him the problem, Roger, like I'm, I'm, I'm frightfully grateful for my education in philosophy and it's a very rigorous, serious subject and so on. But it's very, very well-tilled ground and I have a sense that, you know, the marginal contribution one stands to make is fairly small. And Roger said, yes, yes, I, this is a familiar problem. What you, what you need to do is uh, go into... Uh, an adjacent field where the existing standard is much lower. What, what about architectural theory? That's The standard there is terrible. So even with a very modest talent, you would stand to make a great contribution. <laughs> and we were, so, so I thought that was an interesting idea. And I was, of course, I'd always been very interested in architecture. That wasn't damning with faint praise, was it? <laughs> it's very characteristic Roger utterance. That, uh, so I, did, I pursued a few projects on that in the, over the next um, couple of years. And then when the Building Better, Building Beautiful commission came around and Roger was asked to chair it, he asked me to work as his research assistant, and I spent a year meeting everyone and learning everything I could about why it is we build so little and so badly in this country. And I, by the end of it, I was totally mesmerized and decided that I wanted to um, pursue it further. And so I worked subsequently, as you say, with various think tanks and, and in the civil service on this. And then finally, yes, the job at CPS came up, and I thought... Well, the job doing my favourite subject, my favourite think tank, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> the work at the at the at the feet of the great Ashmore. <laughs> exactly, it's you know, many have been lulled. <laughs> um, I think anyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows that we are firmly convinced that housing is perhaps the uh, issue in British kind of political 
economy. And you've taken on this role at, I think, a really kind of crucial juncture for British policy. Just for our listeners' benefit, I mean, how kind of bad and worrying a moment is this for UK house building? Because on the one hand, I mean, prices are falling, but that seems to me to mainly be a function of interest rates. But the overall picture is very bleak. Rents in London soaring, just a litany of, of issues and a quite unclear kind of legislative roadmap for the, for the sector. So it's quite a long question there, but like, broadly speaking, where are we when it comes to housing in the UK? So, I mean, the biggest thing to say is like, <clears throat> all moments are bad moments in, for the housing in the UK. Um, and the deep issues are perennial ones that go back, I mean, certainly to the 70s, 80s, in many ways, back to the foundation of the planning system. So, so you're so, talking 1940s, that's right, late yeah, 40s. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you know, the uh, floor space values have been creeping up above build costs almost from the start of the planning system, uh, and certainly steeply since, since uh, in, in more recent decades. Um, so there, these very deep systemic uh, features of undersupply, that's the, always the really big issue. Um, at the moment, we face some more specific issues right now. So there's a specific question about a fall in demand um, having to do with higher mortgage rates. That is going to make life more difficult for house builders. Um, that will lead to falling output. It will lead to some, you know, to jobs being lost and small builders going bust. There's also a special issue at the moment about um, um, change in the planning systems. So the government's just produced uh, a new draft National Planning Policy Framework, so the overarching document that governs um, planning in the UK, uh, planning in England. Yeah. And this is a vast document. <coughs> no, the MPPF is a short document. Okay. Uh, we used to have huge quantities of national policy. Um, right. Now we have only this, uh, that was an early 2010s reform. Now we just have a small document, the MPPF, which um, governs, it's supported by large quantities of guidance. So there are, there is still right. loads, okay. loads and loads of long documents in the wings. Um, and then that governs local plans, which are the documents that do most of the actual work of planning, which are drawn up by some 330 local authorities. And those are huge documents. So, so in the end, you end up with thousands and thousands of works, words of, of pages of applicable policy. Okay. To so, any... But the seed of the MPPF is quite small. Yeah, it's the... a short document. Anyone, anyone here could read it in an afternoon. Um, so, and it's not, you know, it's not even particularly impenetrable. It, pro it was probably a good idea to switch over from the old system to the MPPF system. Um, so the government's revising some features of the MPPF. That means that all the local governments writing their local plans are now thinking, okay, the rules are changing. We might be able, you know, our local plans, the, the, the uh, rules governing what our local plans need to look like might be changing. We might be able to get away with allocating fewer sites for housing. So let's hold off allocating sites uh, for the time being until we have an idea of exactly what the new lay of the land is. Yeah. So I, I mean, the full statistics about this will come out soon, but we have uh, certainly extensive anecdotal evidence at the moment that uh, loads and loads of local plan preparation has uh, been put on hold. And that will also cause a, a temporary fall in the quantity of um, housing, uh, quantity of housing output. So, so we've got like deep seven decade old problems which are really really profound and then we've also got some special difficulties for the next year or two which are going to cause a decline in the sector on that question of councils and local plans how variable do you think is the attitude of different areas to new housing are there any councils where they're like yeah build 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 we want more ratepayers in our area we want 
Um, you... Young blood, fresh <laughs> blood in a... There is variation. Um, I think often more cash-starved councils um, uh, sometimes pursue more pro-building policies because it can be a revenue source for them. Um, so you do see, if you look at the uh, you know heat maps of England for where most building is happening relative to existing stock, it's you know full of surprises, and it's often the areas where most building is happening are sometimes quite deprived areas where there isn't actually that much demand for housing. But where local authorities have more urgent need to um, to permit some housing in order to get get uh, hold of the um, their levies on construction and some other government incentives, so so there is some variation. Um, however, you know the deep the deep um, 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 incentives are not that different, or you know they apply in most cases, and they're basically like this, right? So, I live in Haringey. Suppose Haringey permits. 500 houses to be built somewhere, 500, well, they'd probably be flats in Harringay to be built somewhere. That's a huge benefit to whoever owns that land, who gets a huge, um, huge the land's suddenly worth a, load, a lot more because they can build some houses on it. Um, and then it's a benefit to everyone in the, certainly the London, maybe indeed the whole English housing market, who's a first-time buyer or is looking to improve their home or is a private renter. But the f- landowners, just one or you know, two or three people, not very politically influential in most cases. And then the other group is extremely diffuse. It's millions of people. And the vast majority of them don't live in Haringey, so they're not in a position to electorally reward the borough council. And even those who do live in Haringey are very unlikely to recognise the relationship between the 500 homes being built and their very, very slightly lower prices to the prices that counterfactually would have obtained had those homes not been built. So essentially there is no electoral reward to the council for having permitted this. On the other hand, all the people near to this development are going to suffer, like construction work going on next in the two years, loss of yeah. sightline and immunity, pressure on local services and infrastructure, changing the character of the neighborhood, and all the other familiar stuff that people find. And they're going to kick up a huge fuss. And as is well known, like there's often quite a lot of levers they can pull to make life a nightmare for local members. So really, if you're Haringey Council, you don't have much incentive in most cases to permit something like this. You probably want to permit... Uh, either you know as little as possible, or permit only the occasionally sites will come up where it's like everyone agrees it's a blemish, and you can just about build a majority support of local people for redevelopment. You know that does happen sometimes, but but their incentives are to permit very little basically, um, and that is quite hardwired into the structure of a system where those decisions are on are made at a local level, um, and that's why the government to some extent, forces local authorities to build more than they would otherwise like to through um, the right. uh, standard method and so, so on. So targets are a kind of very, right. very blunt instrument for a system that fundamentally is dysfunctional. That's correct. I think, so yes. in your estimation, um, let's say in, your, in an ideal world, what would your solution be to simply tear up the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act and start afresh? Um, no, is that is there is that the kind of underlying problem, or is it just one or the number? It's it's very complicated. So there there are changing features of the twentieth century, twentieth century, twenty first century technology and economics that mean that we did need to our development control system did need to change. So I mean, in the past, you know, we really had very little development control. We had buildings, extensive building regs, but um, no planning system as it is understood today. So you could build essentially in London you could build whatever you liked up to 80 foot plus two roof stories under the equivalent of you know permitted development what what era are we talking right about right up here? to the 40s 
Right, okay. So basically, yeah, pre-1940s. Pre-Atley, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you had to follow building regs. There was a very, very slight restrictions on plot use in some cases. But, but basically, you was, and that worked pretty well for them. That, that allowed cities to gradually intensify up to those kind of familiar European densities over time. Um, and you ended up with really good urbanism. So the problem we have now, so the invention of the car means that if you allow um, that kind of building to take place, you do get enormous ribbon development you do get gigantic sprawl and there are you know genuine externalities around that there are real issues another issue we have now is if you've got you know reinforced concrete and steel and these kinds of materials the cheapest building you can build is probably an ugly building so like you know a few hundred years ago if you're building a barn in the countryside you had to build out a wooden thatch you built something you're just trying to build the cheapest building possible to cover you know your your uh, um, tools but uh the building you built was probably quite an attractive building just because of the nature of the materials you're working in. Now you'd build it out of breeze blocks and some kind of corrugated plastic and you'd end up with something really ugly. Not because, you know, the farmers now are, are like deeply different in their aesthetic ideals than farmers in the 17th century, just because the under technology has changed and, and has created those these, these new, opportun- new opportunities but also new um, side effects on the wider area. Um, and I think probably also like we live in societies where there is less orthodoxy about taste. There's more disagreement about taste. Some people's um, architectural tastes are more offensive yes. to other people. We will than... come on to that question. I think it's a very interesting question of what beauty is. And I think um, in so... those more contested environments, you may you may be right that you need more mediation about... I mean, they didn't... In the past, they never... In England, there are, in other countries, it's sometimes different. But in England, we very rarely... The state has very rarely regulated architectural aesthetics. Um, and... Um, that may have worked fine in societies where there was an orthodoxy about taste, but maybe there is a need for... So I do think, you know, those and other factors did mean we probably needed... Our development control system needed to evolve. Um, but whether the form that it has taken was the right one or whether it's uh, created... I mean, whether it... It may well be it needs to evolve further right. in order to... Uh... Being very diplomatic. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's sort of those of us in what you might call the YIMBY movement, a lot of the time we just kind of throw up our hands and think, damn it all. And that that's, uh, well, sort of radical solution by definition, you know, tearing it up from the root. Um, I encounter a lot of that. And we can, yes. well, we can come back and discuss that later. It's an important it, question. Another view that's helped, I've seen kind of among some Yimby type campaigners, so pro-housing advocates, whatever you want to call them, here and in the States, is that rather than trying to bring people along, this is essentially just a battle of interest groups and we should see it as such. And where do you stand on that? Because a lot of work has gone in with organisations like Create Streets to say, no, we can do this with people's consent. And that's really important. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of the battle of interest stuff, it's understandable that people think that way because under the current system, it so often is a kind of battle of interests. Um, it's not a good framing for people to have. Um, one reason why Yimbis shouldn't have it is that uh, it's very unwise to start a war when you're much, much weaker than the other side. <laughs> so I, and one of the things that people forget about that, it's very interesting this, one of the things people forget about the housing debate in this country is how cyclical it is. Certainly since the 1980s, we've had quite a similar pursued quite a similar cycle where a government will show up where it will say right it's time to do loads of building and smash the nimbies and so 
it will then swiftly swiftly smashed by the NIMBYs. Um, The relevant minister will resign and uh, uh, then the system will row back to where it was before or even lose some ground from where it was before. So, so, you know, one reason why pro-development people should be looking beyond adversarial narratives is just they haven't worked well for pro-development people. um, And we've got decades of evidence that that's the case. I think, you know, there's deeper stuff as well. So, like... um, well, I mean, there's a lot I could say in this connection, but one thing that's worth saying is uh, there are huge opportunities for win-wins here. Um, the uh, sales, the value of floor space in much of the southeast is often three or four times higher than build cost. So that means we're, as one of my colleagues puts it, we're sitting on value here. There's a huge amount of wealth that we're not creating. If we can start to find ways of sharing some of that value with the people who are currently blocking that building from happening, then maybe we can turn a win-lose into a win-win and maybe we can build a more durable coalition in favor of, uh, in favor of development. So I certainly think, you know, that's even setting aside, you know, the deeper moral and philosophical questions about the adversarial approach, just prudentially, it doesn't work. And I do think there are better alternatives. Yeah. In terms of harnessing value, some of that is written into the system now, is it not? In the in the sense that developers have to pay a levy for infrastructure and such things. Is this the kind of thing you mean? I think street votes is the other thing that springs to mind where people in a given street can vote on whether they want development and get a percentage of the proceeds. So the existing system does have some provisions for this, which are good, obviously, and that's... Um, um, welcome that it has those there, there are two two kinds of levy the um, um community infrastructure levy uh, and section 106 section 106 is um more focused around the immediate uh environs of the development that's genuinely valuable but it's just not enough in most cases to convince local people to support development uh, so, uh infrastructure levy the issue there is that the a load of money goes to the local authority but it's not required to be spent on people adjacent to the development. So it can be spent on anyone across the whole district or, or anything across the whole county. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, okay. so, you know, it's, it, and that means only a very, very tiny, invisible minority of that money will be spent on the people who are taking the hit on the development happening near them, and it doesn't provide them with any appreciable incentive to support it. So, so we've got, you know, so those are, I'm obviously in favour of uh, infrastructure levies existing, but um, they're not sufficient to create the kind of win-wins. In, in most cases, they're not sufficient to create the kind of win-wins that would. The idea with street votes is you've got lots of sort of rundown, interwar, post-war streets in suburban areas at quite low densities. If they, if a given, given resident on that street got planning permission to go up, you know, not to high-rise or anything, but just to like traditional English, you know, Georgian or early Victorian densities. What are we talking about? Sort of three or four floors? Three or four stories. Yeah. You know, moderate plot use. Um, the kind of thing, I think Marlebin is your other type template. Yeah. 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 Um, so turn Haringey, say, or I live in Walthamstow, is very like that. Walthamstow is a great example. Loads of two story. Yeah. Often on really, really deep interwar yeah. plots that they. Uh, and loads of it is protected because it's Warner Flats or things like this. So, so the. <laughs> you run into the thicket of other things yeah, that things are related to planets. Very complicated. Yeah, no. So if you if if a given resident were to get permission to go up to those kinds of densities, in many cases in London, you could become an asset millionaire just from getting the permission. Like just from adding a story or two. Yeah. Just from adding a bit of height and increasing plot use. Um, 
and not, as I say, just up to these densities that are universally popular, widely admired all across. Now, the problem, obviously, is that all your neighbours would have construction work going on next to them for two years and all the other inconvenience and lots of sidelines and this kind of... So, so although it might be very much in your interest to get permission for this, it's very much in the interest of all your neighbours to oppose your getting permission for this. And you could have a street where it's in everyone's individual interest to get this permission, but also in everyone's interest to block this permission for everyone else. And our institutions make that very easy, so this kind of intensification basically never happens under our system. The idea with street votes is you can get around this kind of collective action problem by letting the street as a whole create a mandate for that kind of change through a qualified majority vote. Um, there are some international examples of this. You tend to get a lot of uptake. Um, and streets have a, yeah, um, they have a very obvious, very strong incentive to uh, support high densities in some cases where there's high where there's you know real scarcity of housing in the area where there's really high floor space value where you've got good good local infrastructure already um, by doing that they can create what's probably a better and more sustainable urban form they can create a lot of homes and they can yeah you know, make a dent in the housing shortage so that that's an example of the kind of win-win policy that I'm interested in um, where you you empower empower local people to opt into kinds of development that benefit them as well as benefiting wider society. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So just to return to the sort of your academic roots, if you like, um, in the area of kind of philosophy and aesthetics, um, one of the... One of the aspects of the housing debate I find interesting is that a lot of pro-housing campaigners will tell you that there's much, it's much easier to get buy-in if you have vernacular architecture or architecture that, you know, local people feel is in, is in keeping. I mean, how important is that? I mean, I'm, I'm slightly unconvinced. I think that some people are so set in their anti-development ways that however beautiful the development is, they'll just go, no, not here, too many people, you know, not enough infrastructure. I mean, how big a deal is beauty when it comes to getting development through? It's a complex one, this. I mean, and sometimes I think the, the pro-beauty argument's been poorly served by people over-claiming for it, that like, provided the development is beautiful, provided it looks like Bath, it will have universal <laughs> support from... Uh, and that that's probably, I mean, 
There's not many places that do look like bars. So. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. How to make things that look like bars is another. But but I think um, you know there's not much evidence to suggest. I mean, people have a lot of reasons to oppose development, and aesthetics um, are only one of them. So we shouldn't imagine that you know, if you just get the aesthetics right, then suddenly everyone will flip over to. Um, that having been said, I mean, it's certainly one factor. Um, and I think if you get to quite certain, quite specific kinds of development, it may be really quite important. So, so we were looking at, you know, I've worked a bit on, this is a niche example, but kind of um, useful. I looked at uh, mansard roof extensions. So these are the, you know, loads of these um, English buildings from the 18th and 19th century. They were built with very shallow pitch roofs. And then when demand was high enough, they built these slightly more expensive roof types, double pitch roof, mansard roof, which gave you an extra story. Yeah. Um, and that process was kind of stopped, died out in the 20th century for various reasons, now very hard to get to the planning system. And I, it's absolutely the case that lots of planners um, and lots of local communities would oppose mansards because they're worried about ugly mansards going up and ruining the aesthetics of the area. And that absolutely you know, can happen. And there are periods in the 1980s where lots of ugly mansards did go up. Um, and I'm I'm sure that is something where people don't go, like, right, there's no way we're letting this happen to our neighbourhood. Let's just have a no mansards rule. Actually, it's, it's not very difficult to set rules that will guarantee you beautiful mansards such that really nobody minds them being there. It's just they look as though they could have been, the buildings could have yeah. been built that way. Visually extremely inoffensive. Maybe they even enhance the roof. So, so, not hard to set those rules, but our system traditionally hasn't really done that. Um, and that's an example where I think, like, if you if you sort the aesthetics issue there, maybe you can actually deal with most of the problem. And I and I you think you could find other other you know again they might be niche issues, but once you look at a whole list of these niche issues um, where it's uh, it, the aesthetics are maybe quite a decisive factor, you you end up talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of homes that we might be... Uh, so, so so, I think they end up... It ends up being quite a significant issue for our system um, that we that we haven't been so good at getting this right. Um, and it is it's a very welcome thing in this country that we've started talking about it again over the last five or ten years, which, which could make a difference. Now, you've slightly preempted my next question there, which is what would be your preferred... Let's say you were sitting in front of the community secretary what would be your preferred quick fixes bearing in mind we have two years until an election that would quickly and relatively painlessly add supply so street votes is one that's often mentioned but it strikes me as slightly bureaucratic and might take a while to actually get off the ground um so yeah one that i heard suggested was basically what you were saying before about just adding two stories the south tottenham plan if you like I just wonder what you, what your sort of policy suggestions would be. Yeah, I mean, two years is a pretty fast turnaround for us yes, to produce. Is, a, yeah. I think that we're, we're finding this problem across the board for the government. <laughs> is, uh... Yes, I don't know if I've so. I mean, what what something like so? If you introduce a right for people to add, I mean, mansard extensions is the really the really soft end of this kind of thing. It's really visually inoffensive totally familiar part of the built environment there are a few and there's loads of viability like, and there's in an area with huge demand for huge housing huge demand like basically london. <laughs> in london every house that could take a mansard historically it would be economically viable to add them take a generation of course for that to work. but but quite a few might add them quite swiftly 
Many of those, of course, serve as extra bedrooms for existing houses, but others will be flats or granny flats or they'll. So, yeah. so that that's an example where you know if you create the kind of well, the government's doing this. They put into the MPPF a change on mansards, and that stands to create a little rush of housing to be produced quite quickly. Um, the South Tottenham example you allude to is a slight, slightly bolder policy. So it's a very fascinating story. This, the um, so this is the Haredi Jewish community who have they typically have large families and they are required to live within walking distance of the synagogue um, for religious reasons. And it's the area tends to be two, three bedroom houses. So they've suffered from terrible overcrowding in recent years. In cases of like five or ten children per bedroom, um, really, really tough. So they launched a campaign to persuade the local council to allow them to add one and a half stories to their homes, subject to a strict design code that they just replicate the lower stories, and you end up with so this is sort of late Victorian um, um, terraces. You end up with something which just looks like it was designed as a three point five story Victorian terrace rather than a two story Victorian terrace. It's and quite amazing, actually, if you look at the pictures, you would not know. No, I mean the really ones wouldn't. the ones yeah. that have been done since they introduced the design code. There were some earlier illegal ones before that, which are a bit of a mess. But the ones that have been done since they put the design code in, it does the job. It's yep. not that hard to do this. And the council, to its great credit, you know, worked constructively with them, drew up this design code, came into force. And now these one and a half stories are popping up everywhere. Um, and it will take, again, a generation for the whole neighborhood to, to do this and for it to end up looking like a three and a half story neighborhood rather. But, but um, you get pretty fast uptake pretty quickly. Um, so you do, you know, I, I can't guarantee you... Uh, millions of units within uh, 18 months. But um, but there are some, you know, relatively low hanging fruit there that, um, that but you, and I stress, you know, in all of these cases, the policies do have to be designed carefully. So you don't produce a load of ugly extensions, which then uh, kill political support for the policy and render it um, 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 temporary and, and ultimately of, of little value. So it is, Definitely with these cases like extensions, this is another case where getting the aesthetics right is just indispensable. If it looks right, people will say, oh, that's fine. Why why, why did we stop that? That's a weird right. thing that we've been doing. Whereas if it looks wrong, people are like, well, this is horrible. We're destroying Victorian London. Why, you know, of course we should stop it. Um, I'm going to slightly change tack and ask you a very sort of deep and uh, philosophical question, um, which is, you know, in keeping with an academic in the field. But... Is there a kind of objective idea of what a beautiful home looks like? Um, and if not, how kind of culturally contingent are our ideas of what an attractive house looks like? I mean, does someone in, uh, I don't know. And is it is it temporally contingent as well? I mean, I think it's probably, my view on this is that we can kind of do So there's a huge philosophical question about objectivity or realism about beauty. That's very, very difficult. People have been arguing that, that for a very long time. I don't think we really need to settle that question um, in, for political purposes. So so suppose it's just the case... I'm that, just interested. Yeah. But, <laughs> well, on the, on the longer bonus version of this podcast, we'll go into great detail. Yeah. On this. I but see I, you've written in the Journal of Aesthetics, which is a publication <laughs> I wasn't aware of before. It's, so. Uh, so my view is, like, suppose it is the case that judgments of beauty are purely subjective in some you know, strong sense. Um, and there's there's no argument is possible about them. It's just a brute fact that some people find some visual setups beautiful and some people find other visual setups beautiful. I don't think that's true as it happens, but suppose that is true. And suppose nonetheless that we have quite a lot of overlap between what people 
find beautiful and ugly. Seems to me that's probably enough for the government to create some basis for public policy here. So compare, like, if if our sewers were emitting this smell that for 95% of people was unbearably foul, but for 5% of people had no effect on them or was pleasant or something, there would still be reason for the government to take action. It's the coriander debate. The coriander debate. Yeah, there yeah, we go. That's right. It's just... If you're not familiar with this, for some people, coriander tastes like mouthwash, apparently, or something like that. So it's, it's, it's horrible it's for some people yeah. and uh, okay. quite pleasant for most people. Yeah. That's just a brute fact. There's no argument about it. Nobody's making a mistake. We don't need to worry about objectivity. But like, it would still be wrong for, I don't know, the government to force coriander on all school children, including right, the school children. Exactly. It was horrible to... So, so I, I think like this debate often runs into the ground of people worrying about objectivity and subjectivity. Whereas in fact, like we can just talk about uh, the... Even if it's entirely subjective, we've still got something which can be a harm to people or a blessing to people. And that's a sufficient basis for there to be some role for public authorities in, in yeah. negotiating and mediating. It's also the beauty of the market, isn't it? If people can just vote with their feet or, that's, or buy or not buy. That's partly true. But remember, it's the, the issue with beauty is that uh, it doesn't just get consumed by the person who pays for it. Right. So it's... Um, and there is a systematic issue with a completely free market here if you've got fragmented property ownership. So only the person who um, owns the property bears the cost of making it beautiful, but the beauty of the property is a blessing for everyone who lives near it and walks past it. And that's, you know, visible even in pricing data. There are some spectacular examples of this. So mm. so there is, you know, beauty can be, it's, it's kind of a face and a case for positive externality. Um, and it might be value maximizing for an individual property owner to build the monstrous concrete multi-story car park, even though in fact that's not value maximizing for the community as a whole because it destroys the property values of all the homes around and blights the neighborhood in this case. So, so I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on a CPS podcast, but I do think there's a uh, a proper role for regulation um, in these cases. Take and him away. <laughs> <laughs> that has been recognised in all communities yeah. and all times and places. I mean, we've never the, the building regulation in this country in some form is extremely old, um, and and there are there are good reasons for that. Yeah, I think having lived next to an extremely noisy building project, my attitude to regulation changed quite. You'd have to be a proper, proper uh, sort of diehard libertarian not to have some kind of um, planning framework. Just looking ahead to the next, let's say, couple of years, it's a, a decent benchmark because it's, well, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but it's probably what this government's got left. Um <laughs> Is there any, are there things that we should be looking out for in the in the housing field in terms of upcoming legislation or financial or, or data or anything like that that will give us a, an idea of where we how the sector is moving forwards? So in I mean in policy terms, the two big things um, will be the Leveling Up Bill and the um, next version of the National Planning Policy Framework. We know now roughly what's going to be in both of those. Um, so. I'm afraid part of the answer to your question is um, is 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 no. Actually, we've uh, probably we know what's the, coming. Yeah. probably the government has fired its last two big bolts, um, and those. I mean, they they could of course. We don't. The MPBF thing's still in draft. The Leveling Up Bill's still going to the House of Lords. We don't know exactly what they'll look like in their finished form, but but those were the two big surprises until you know a month ago or so, um, and now those those surprises are out in the in the wild. Um, stuff to look out for beyond that i mean the government has huge powers through guidance that it i mean it can issue guidance with no certainly without consulting parliament in fact without consulting anyone it's just a diktat from the department 
And guidance is really powerful. So uh, and, and they don't, I don't think they even need to announce it. It's just a living document, the uh, PPG. So, you know, you should always keep an eye on what's coming out there. And some of it might turn out to be quite significant. Um, okay. But I, I don't think we're in for, I mean, you know, famous last words, but I don't think we're in for any huge legislative or national policy surprises in the coming months. Okay, so keep your eyes on those living uh, planning guidance documents. (laughs) Samuel, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It's been an extremely uh, enlightening discussion. Thank you at home, as ever, for listening. If you like the podcast, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And tell your friends about it too.